This is Aspiring Altruists, the show where you'll hear the stories of young professionals in the nonprofit sector working to change the world. We'll dive into their backgrounds, hear about the work they do, and ultimately learn how they got to where they are and how you can do the same. With the nonprofit sector comprising one of the largest U.S. workforces by tackling the world's biggest problems across nine major categories, you may just hear something that could change your life, and through it, the lives of countless others. On today's episode, we're going to hear from a young woman named Mina Yazi. An American Muslim in the post-9-11 world, Mina works as a youth peace and security advisor at Search for Common Ground, the largest dedicated peace-building organization in the world. She has quite the story, having a very personal understanding of the ongoing conflict in the Middle East due to her family background from Afghanistan. In her current role, she focuses on policy advocacy, protecting activists that are doing the hard work on the ground to make peace possible, and so much more. But enough for me. Let's hear from her. So, Mina, you and I have chatted before about the career path you've chosen, but I know you've actually changed organizations and roles since we first connected. So tell us all a little bit about your current role in the organization you work for. Sure. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, I currently work for Search for Common Ground as a youth peace and security advisor. Last time we chatted, I was working at the Alliance for Peace Building, where I had kind of a broader scope over policy and advocacy and peace building. Um, but I really wanted to narrow down my focus and, and choose an area that I could build an expertise in. And this opportunity opened up at Search for Common Ground. And um, I immediately took it because Search is the largest dedicated peace building organization in the world um, with, yeah. over, uh, with over 300 uh, staff members around the world and over 30 country offices. So it's a very diverse organization that works in a variety of different areas within the peace building field. As a youth peace and security advisor, I focus specifically on our U.S.-based youth policy advocacy. I also support our work on protecting young activists on the front lines of peace building, either from government repression or from any type of protection issues they may face by working with Western INGOs. And I also support our work on youth leadership capacity development. So specifically with our Global Youth Leadership Council and a few other areas of youth leadership. You're talking about that working in peace building and the path that you've had. For you, what is what does peace building mean to you and what do you want to see accomplished through the work you're doing and peace building in general? It's a good question. Peace building to me means hope and it means community and it means collective action. Oftentimes, and as you know, this year especially has been really difficult for the world. And uh, it would be really, really difficult to not think about how we can move past that without working collectively. And I think peace building offers a very interesting way to do that because peace building isn't just about compromise where one person gives up something else for the sake of society, but it's more so about cooperation, where people work mutually together to, for the greater good and, and get comfortable with being uncomfortable so that uh, we can develop more respect and everything for one another. So uh, that's really what peace building means to me. And I think that it's applicable, not just in conflict transformation, but in everything, right? In climate work. Um, when we're working to develop a vaccine for a global pandemic and so many other areas of of life and society. Yeah, and it sounds like you've really got 
a passion for the for that kind of work that you do. And I know from your background that you've had several roles within peace building and from your uh, college degree. So what led to you having such a passion for peace building work? So my family is originally from Afghanistan. They immigrated to the U.S. back in the 80s, shortly after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So, and I grew up kind of in the post 9-11 era, um, right after the U.S. invaded. So I had this very complicated dual, how do I say this, dual inheritance of the Afghan conflict, where on one side I had all of this family trauma and this, um, I I also lost members uh, to the conflict and members of my family to the conflict in Afghanistan. And then on the other hand, growing up as an American Muslim and an immigrant, I dealt with an identity crisis where like this country that I had never been to before and this identity that I held so dearly to myself was one that wasn't accepted in the only place that I knew to call home, which is America. And so that kind of pushed me to to see conflict from a different uh, level, I think, or a different perspective, which uh, encouraged me to not only use the privileges I had as someone who grew up and was born in the U.S. as a U.S. citizen, but also to give back to my family's country um, and use that privilege in a strong way. As someone who understands the conflict from an on-the-ground experience, and then someone as an American citizen who's concerned about our our foreign policy, um, I found this kind of dual uh dual role that I could play um, specifically for conflict and peace building. Yeah, that's a really unique perspective to have. Uh, And I know those kind of perspectives are important in actually being able to accomplish that kind of work and relate with, yeah, relate with the work going on. Uh, So that's, yeah, really interesting to hear that kind of take that you have on it and what's led you there. Out of that work that you're doing now, can you tell us, both what some of your favorite parts about that in terms of the work that you're doing and have done, as well as some of the most challenging? So some of my favorite work is connecting with people abroad and inside of the conf- uh, the conflict country zones that we work in, um, being able to make the connections for them that they otherwise would not have to advocate for themselves with the U.S. Congress has been the most interesting thing. For example, a lot of the lobby work we do, we bring young people from around the world to Congress to talk about their work as young peace builders. And not only is that helpful for our advocacy with some of the legislative work that we do, but it's very empowering and life-changing for them to get just 20 to 30 minutes of a congressional office's time to talk about the work that they do, um, which has made a really big influence and validates their work. And being able to provide that bridge in a very conscientious way is really exciting. The most difficult part is also that because the reality of a lot, excuse me, of a lot of the young people that we work with is that they live in very dangerous conflict zones. Just over the past few weeks, uh, Search has had to take some very drastic measures to protect some of the young people that we work with in Egypt and the DRC because Mm. of ongoing threats that these young people are facing in their communities, either for the work that they do or simply just their affiliation with a Western INGO um, Mm. that really puts a threat. And we've lost a number of colleagues due to violence and the work that we do. The nature of this work is very dangerous. And so living in grappling with those realities on a daily basis can be very difficult. Yeah, that's got to be quite the situation to be in working with that in terms of really 
seeing that on the groundwork happening and knowing that you're not just there being like some other organizations that are doing international work welcomed with open arms and things like that, but actually getting into a situation that can be dangerous for those doing the work, but needing to push through regardless. If if there was something about your current role that you could change that would make it more impactful, if anything, what would that be? Ooh, and I know that this is a very, <laughs> very cliche or idealistic at the moment, but being able mm. to travel would make the work much more impactful. The nature of peace building is human to human interaction and developing common ground based on commonalities as humans. And even, well, one, starting from the work that we do on the ground, being able to actually go to the country offices and meet the people that we work with. Um, makes a very big difference in our ability to build relationships or facilitation and dialogue work is really hard to do virtually. And then mm-hmm. second, a lot of the legislative advocacy work is also really difficult to do virtually because it's little things like exchanging business cards and you know shaking hands with congressional staffers and actually being able to bring young people from abroad to Washington, D.C., to Capitol Hill. That experience is so impactful. And mm you know, with COVID-19, it has not only made that more difficult, but it's made the reality of our work on the ground more difficult because now these young people are not just dealing with conflict, but they're dealing with a pandemic that's making Mm. their work even harder. So, you know, if we could uh, all wear masks and vaccinate and and get through this really difficult time, then things could definitely get better. But that's the number one thing I would change. Yeah, I feel like that's probably true for pretty much most of the world these days. But yeah, definitely interesting to hear about how it's affecting peace building specifically those are the kinds of areas you don't really think about in terms of uh, what that what that challenge means and the difference that it makes even with things like this zoom calls and all that uh, how much of a difference it makes being able to be in the same room as a person in the impact that can have if there are others out there that are hearing your story and about the impact that the work you're doing is having what advice would you give to them if they're considering pursuing a similar path? I would say think about how much the return on investment this work has for you as an individual. The work is emotionally challenging. It can be physically dangerous and it doesn't have a lot of financial return, meaning that the pay grade in this field is extremely low. So the difficult work you do doesn't often have a lot of compensation financially. So it's really just figuring out what specifically you're looking for. But the emotional satisfaction you get from the job is extremely high as well. And the impact you make is also really, really high. So it's really about what matters to you as a professional and what kind of a career you're willing or want to make and what kind of sacrifices you're willing to make along that path. Yeah. And that's kind of the nonprofit sector in general, I feel like. And that's what I've heard from many others that work across other sectors as well. Although yours, like you've described, has the added aspect of being more physically dangerous than some of the other roles, uh, some of the other kinds of organizations. So that's definitely something to consider is all of the, all of those pros and cons, but yeah, really being as you are dedicated to the work and knowing why that is. Are there any beyond that, any kind of myths about peace building or, you know, your, your current role or the organization you work for anything along those lines that you'd want to call out and say, 
that's not true? Hmm. I think one really interesting myth is that we're not all hippies. Um, people think <laughs> peace building and peace is something that came out of the 70s. And while that is true, the founders of our field are from the 70s and 80s um, and came out of this understanding that hard national security approaches to conflict resolution don't work. I think a really important thing to consider is a lot of the biggest champions for peace building come from the military and hard mm. security sector. A lot of retired generals, a lot of people who have been national security advisors or, or have worked in the security field support peace building. And in fact, mm. a lot of Republicans and conservatives support peace building. The majority of peace building policies that have been put out there have been completely bipartisan, um, mm. meaning that everybody from across all different all different aisles across the political spectrum support peace building because it's a common sense, cost effective, and impactful approach to conflict resolution. So I think that's a really important myth to dispel. And on top of that, a lot of people who go into peace building come from very different sectors. They come from STEM careers. They come mm. from medicine. They come, we have, uh, I remember I worked at an organization that had a rocket scientist on staff. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting field that brings very different personalities because it takes a very comprehensive and holistic approach to conflict resolution, as opposed to a very niche approach that very different fields take to the work that they do. Yeah, it's definitely something that, at least in theory, as you've described, should be something that can be bipartisan and be supported by people no matter where they're coming from. That's good to hear that that is, in fact, the case out in reality rather than just uh, looking at, oh, of course, peace building. Who doesn't want world peace on paper kind of deal? Exactly. And yeah, you need to uh, hear that there are people that are from all these different areas as you were describing that are in that kind of work, especially when it comes to generals and defense areas, that they're more open to those kind of solutions rather than I feel like here in the US we have a very military heavy culture and using that kind of force approach uh through through where we prioritize spending and other things like that. So that's uh you need to hear that there's those that are pushing for alternative solutions, even from those that work in those have have backgrounds in those areas. With with that, uh, you describing all those different people that are in the work you do and uh, your organization and in the field. Have there who who have been the three most impactful people for you, and what kind of influence have they had? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's see. My first boss, her name's Anne Louise Colgan was uh, extremely impactful simply because I was maybe 20 at the time that I got that uh, position. It was at the U.S. Institute of Peace as a research assistant. And I remember being the youngest person on staff. I remember coming in with so much intimidation and fear, but so much optimism. And she really supported me and embraced my optimism and gave me a lot of ownership and leadership over certain projects that I think really, really pushed my confidence in my work and my understanding and ownership over the work. The second most influential, or I, I don't think I can rank these um, at all, actually. They're all influential in different ways. But right. my current boss, uh, Saji Prelis, is 
absolutely wonderful and phenomenal. He supports me in everything I want to do. And we both are very visionary people. So we're able to uh, push each other on our visions and really come up with crazy creative ideas to solutions to problems. But not only just that, his ability to stand up against systems and to stand up for what's right, even though he may be one of the only people to believe that in a given situation, has been so inspiring and very insightful and a big reminder that the work is more important than anything and staying true to the values of peace building, such as compassion and collective action and support for one another based on basic human values is has been really refreshing and so important, especially at this stage of my career where I am, you know, you slowly find yourself falling into the traps of the way systems are structured. But mm. he's been so helpful in making sure that I stay humble and true to who I am and true to the work. A third person that I would say is my grandfather. He was the mayor of Kandahar City, where my family is from, from 2007 to 2011. He came to the U.S. with nothing but the clothes on his back and his six children and his wife and his um, his mother. Um, yet he uh, he worked multiple jobs, but eventually became an accountant and built himself a very comfortable middle middle class life in Northern Virginia. And then went back and became mayor of of the city that he left. And unfortunately, he was assassinated in 2011 by uh, unknown political forces. And his sacrifice and his dedication to building peace has been the most inspiring, motivating thing for me, also going into the field. And he, similar to Saji, always preached standing up for justice, standing up for what's right, even though you may stand alone and it may take a sacrifice in that process. So he's always constantly a reminder for me um, and always an inspiring motivation to continue doing this work, no matter how difficult it gets. Yeah, those are definitely, I can see how those all individually have the impact, especially hearing the story there of your grandfather. Yeah, that's that's something that has, seems to be, again, true in, in many things. Is it takes somebody standing up and pushing for what's right, even if they're alone. And it's amazing that somehow looking around some of those times and feeling like, how is this person alone? How are they not more standing up and pushing for this? But yeah, right. it, it takes that courage to create change that hopefully leads to building up the momentum and causing the tidal wave in the sense of, of real structural change and real broad, uh, broad widespread change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if there were one thing that you could tell all the listeners here about the work they do or about your life story or anything else, uh, what would that be? I think I would say never give up. I have this Dalai Lama quote hanging up right uh, on my wall next to my desk. And it says, no matter what is going on, never give up, develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate. Um, and I think that's a very important quote because especially right now with uh, COVID-19 and a really, really crazy political atmosphere, it's mm. it's very easy to say I give up and I'm going to go do something else. I've, I, I think for a few months I was in that mindset where I was like, this work is too difficult. The challenges are too high and difficult. So let me just go to the private sector and make uh, you know six figures and go buy myself a beautiful home in Northern California. But um, <laughs> I know that that's you know that's that's not 
that's not what change makers do and change makers cannot give up. And I think if you really want to be a trailblazer in the world, you just absolutely can't give up. So just constantly reminding yourself of the larger mission and the impact that you want to achieve and create in the world and making sure that that's what drives you and not a personal profit or gain. Yep. That is, that is certainly true. <laughs> that, that kind of mindset is a powerful and that can fuel you on. It's amazing realizing those seemingly somewhat easier routes of yeah pursuing personal gain things like that seem like the thing to do on the surface it's amazing how many times the people that often get all those things and accomplish all those things are left feeling empty right. if it's not really where their heart was at and uh, not what they actually wanted but more what society told them they should have so that they're successful <laughs> right <laughs> well that's about all I've got for you here, but uh, where can our listeners best connect with you if they'd like to hear more about your unique background and story and learn more about the work that you're doing? Everyone, feel free to email me. Uh, my email is maiazi at sfcg.org. Um, that's my work email. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. It's at M-E-N-A-A-Y-A-Z-I. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Yazi. I'm happy to chat with anyone who is interested. Search again is the largest peace building NGO. So um, we constantly have either job openings or opportunities to uh, work in the field. But yeah, always happy to chat. Yeah. And that's, I know you and I had originally connected here many months ago over, over LinkedIn. So yeah, there's, there's that. And uh, I will definitely go ahead and put links to all of those, including your organization down in the show notes for anybody looking to learn more. Well, thanks for taking the time out to come here on the show today and for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Adam. It was so great to catch up and chat with you after so long. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Hopefully you learned something new about the work happening in the nonprofit sector and were inspired to get involved. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening from. If you want to learn more about today's guest, how you can contact them and explore the organization they work for, check out the show notes. But that'll do it for this episode. Come back next time to hear from yet another aspiring altruist.